Good morning. Glad to see you all out this morning. I know it's been a rough couple of weeks as far as health goes and, and all of us, and, um, and I'm still a little stuffed up myself, but I'm thankful to be here with you. I want to encourage you to uh, visit the website when you get a chance. We're trying to keep it updated with the latest on announcements, as well as uh, articles. Um, our own Lisa Combs actually wrote one, submitted yesterday. There's a new article uh, that, that you ought to go and, uh, to the website and check out that she wrote. Very insightful, very good. And so I want to invite you to do that. And of course, we always post the, uh, the sermon videos and recordings on the website as well for those materials to be available to you to share uh, with others that you might think can benefit from it. As Steve mentioned in the Lord's Supper talk, we've been more and more in our country plagued with events of tragedy, bad news. And I know that you're probably like me this past week on Wednesday whenever the announcement was made that there was another school shooting in Florida and 17 were murdered. As a parent, the things that go through my head, um, I, can't even actually, actually, I can't even verbalize, I can't even share with you because it is ultimately my worst fear to hear those, those words. And when senseless tragedies strike, so much of the world responds as well. They, they cry, where is God? My first thought is often not a compassionate one when people say that because in my own opinion, I believe that only one person has ever been a victim and he volunteered. And that will be Jesus Christ. But we can't help but Mourn for those who are grieved by these things. And often, the cries of where is God, where is Jesus, preceded by mocking of our public offering of prayers, our clear and unconcealed sympathy and hurt for the hurting. And through that is a tone that most of the time, I believe as Christians, we have to be able to see Christ in it. To look at one of these tragedies and see that, that, that God is still present in the worst of men, in the worst actions, in the worst, most senseless things that can happen. We still, as Christians, as believers, have to be able to look into these things and still see God in these things. Not in the evil, but in the good. When you see a community rally together to help those who are grieving, when you see people put down their barriers that Steve talked about in the Lord's Supper talk and just become people and reach out to one another in our community, you have to see Christ in that. Somehow, somewhere in the midst of tragedy, we have to see our Savior, our Comforter, our King, and in doing so, know then that He truly does care about these poor people. I want to look at what the Bible reveals about seeing Jesus in times of tragedy today. I want to turn to John chapter 11. We're not going to read the entire chapter. We're familiar with this passage. We know that this tells of the account of Lazarus, someone who was a friend of Jesus. He was close to Lazarus. He was close to Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha. And we're going to start... We're going to start 
in verse 17 and just read for a little while. And then we're going to talk about seeing Jesus in this great tragedy and how he responds and how we should learn from his responses of what we should do in times like this ourselves. In verse 17, it says, When Jesus came, he found that Lazarus has already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. And so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now that I know whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I think this is the question that we have to ask ourselves in times of tragedy. Do we believe this? Do we believe what he says here? And she said, yes, Lord, I believe. You are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. And now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise and quickly go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep. There, and Mary had come to where Jesus was and saw him, and she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. And Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, and he was deeply moved in the spirit and greatly His spirit greatly troubled him, and he said, Where have you laid him? And she said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And so the Jews said, See how he loved him? Those are powerful words. Powerful words. But some of them said, Could he not have opened his eyes to the blind and and have kept this man from dying? And then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, then the stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone, Martha. And the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so she took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said on this account of this life, people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said those things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come to Mary, who had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered to the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go, everyone will go on believing in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place in this nation. Mary and Martha were facing the same problem that many of those families in Florida faced this week. 
They're looking at this tragedy and they're saying, where were you, Lord? In all of this, where were you? How does this make any sense? You can see the grief that Mary and Martha both have and how they're both dealing with it in different ways as people deal with grief their own way. But Jesus moves through the ruins of this tragedy with four things. Tears, anger, truth, and grace. The truth he wields to Martha. The tears that he sheds with Mary. The anger he directs at the tomb. And then the grace he extends to everyone who's present. Even those who then go off to plot his death. Let's look at the way these things fit together. I want to look first at the tears of Jesus. What do we learn from this? What do we learn from the shortest verse in all of Scripture? Jesus wept. What do we learn here? When Jesus reaches Mary, she asks him a major theological question. Lord, why weren't you here? You could have stopped this. Why weren't you here? Where were you? She asked him a question and he couldn't even speak. He just wept. All he could do is ask, where have you laid him? Where is he? Where'd you put him? He's troubled. It says that he's deeply moved. This reaction is startling to me because when Jesus enters this situation, he comes with two things that you and I don't have. He knows he's going to turn this into a manifestation of the glory of God. And he knows that he's going to do. And in 10 minutes, they're going to be rejoicing. When you and I enter these tragic situations, we have no idea. We have no idea what to do or what we're even able to do. And so the first thing he has is knowing why it happened. And the second thing he has is power. He can do something about the problem and you and I can't do a thing to undo it. So we do what we do. We offer prayers we're often mocked by the world when we send our thoughts and prayers, as people say. Oh, here they go, sending their thoughts and prayers. That'll really fix a lot. But see, we don't have the power that Jesus has. But we do have prayer, and we know what prayer can do, and so we send prayers. But Jesus has power, and yet he still weeps. Why? Why doesn't he just come in and say, just wait a minute. Y'all just wait and see what I'm about to do. If you knew that you were about to turn everything around, if you had the power Jesus has here and you knew you were about to turn everything upside down, would you be drawn down into grief? Entering into the trauma and pain in their hearts? Why would Jesus do that? It's because he's perfect. It's because he's perfect. He is perfect love. Did you see what they said? Do you see how he loved him? 
He will not close his heart off, not even for 10 minutes. He will not refuse to enter into this. He doesn't say there's not much point in entering into all this grief. Now he goes in. And we learn two things from this. The first is simple, but it needs to be said. There is nothing wrong with weeping at a time like this. There is nothing wrong with giving in to the emotional aspect of what's happened and just crying over what's happened. To not close your heart off, but to let it do what it's going to do. Jesus was the most mature person who ever lived. And yet he is falling into grief. It is not a sign of immaturity or weakness. The people who are more like Jesus don't avoid grief. They find themselves pulled into grief with those who are hurting. And there is something very right about that. We try to keep ourselves in check so often. Maybe too much. And Jesus teaches us here about tears being necessary and right in a situation like this. The second thing is his tears suggest there's something about our need to fix it. The ministry of truth and power without tears isn't complete. You have to have tears. Do we volunteer to help? Yes. Do we want to send support? Yes. Do we want to send relief? Do we want to get involved? Yes. Do we want to help people who have been bereaved? Yes. So let's enter into that, but let's not just fix it. Let's weep with those who weep. So often we want to go in with a solution just to fix the problem. Well, what we need to do is we need to go down there and we need to put security guards at the door. There's no solution for those who have been killed. Just go and weep. Just go and be there with them. The first lesson about suffering is learned from the tears here in Jesus. Tears are a natural response and they show great compassion and support. Jesus cried for the victims here. The second thing we learn about suffering is what we learn in anger. From Jesus. Did you notice anything in the text that I read that indicated that Jesus was angry? In verse 33, when Jesus saw Mary and others weeping, it says he was moved deeply in the spirit and troubled. The original Greek word there means to quake with rage. Verse 38, as Jesus came to the tomb, it says he was deeply moved. That's the same word. He quaked with rage. The original Greek word means there to roar with anger like a lion or a bull. So the best translation would be bellowing in anger. He came to the tomb. This must at least mean that his nostrils flared with fury. It must mean that he was, doesn't mean that he was necessarily yelling in anger, but he was angry. And this is relevant to us because this is what we're all going through when tragedies strike like this, like this one this week. People get angry. How did this happen? 
Why didn't they see the signs? How come the FBI didn't respond to these reports? Why about gun control? Why about schools? And, and on and on and on, and we get angry. It is a natural response. But improperly focused, anger can damage our perspective. Jesus here is not angry at the victims. He's not angry at the reason that he died. He's angry at death itself. Our shock and grief are giving way to fear and anger. There is a lot of rage going on right now concerning gun control in this matter. In this passage, Jesus is filled with rage just like we are when tragedies like this strike. But what does he do with it? There are two things he does not do. First, he does not become a Job's friend. Do you know what I mean when I say a Job's friend? In the book of Job, a series of terrible things happened to Job. His children died. He lost all of his money. He became sick. And Job's friends said clearly, you ain't living right. And that God must be judging you for your sins or these bad things wouldn't be happening to you. Does Jesus speak that way to Mary and Martha? Is he angry with them? Would he also then be mad at the victims of this week's tragedy? Does he say if this young man, Lazarus, is cut off on the prime of his life, he must be receiving judgment for his sins. Because that's what we do sometimes in these situations. We go, well, America is getting what it deserves. I saw a, a picture come up on social media this week that says, Dear God, why would you let this tragedy happen in my school? And it says, Dear child, I'm not allowed in your schools. But do you see what something like that does? It makes the victims at fault. What did these children do to deserve to die? And yet that's the spin we put on it when we're angry. Do you think Jesus was mad at these children? We do that. We spin anger. He's not mad at them. And he's also not mad at himself. The other reaction we have is we get mad at God. Here's one who claims to be God, who could have prevented this, and now he's filled with rage, but not at himself. He says to Martha, I am the resurrection of life. And one of the most stupendous claims that anyone has ever made. He doesn't just say, I'm a healer. He says, I am the resurrection of life. I am the offerer of life. He is God, and he's making his claim. But when he gets to the tomb... He doesn't demonize anyone, including the victims, including God. And I bring this up because everyone who is speaking publicly about this event, truth must be put in a narrative so that they can make sense of it. And you can't make sense of things unless you find a storyline. And there are two storylines that people are using today that Jesus is rejecting here. The first storyline is that this tragic thing happened because America is being judged for its sins. Interestingly enough, both the left and the right are using it. People on the left are saying that America asked for it because look at our social injustice. And people on the right are saying, look at all of our immorality. God is punishing us. In both cases, the storyline is God is punishing us to blame the victims. Think biblically about this for a second. How do you decide whether God is mad at you? 
How do you decide whether he's mad at you personally or as a nation, let's just say? How do you know whether God is mad at you or pleased with you? Do you decide by looking at how life is going for you? I hope not. Because Jesus, who is most certainly a good person, the best to have ever walked the earth, had a lousy life. He lived in rejection. He lived in loneliness. Everything went wrong in Jesus' life. Jesus did not suffer for us that we would not suffer. He suffered so that when we suffer, it makes us like him. So that we can know he understands us. Hebrews 4 and 15 says, we have a high priest that can sympathize with us. The storyline that God is judging America for its sins is not a good storyline Jesus is not mad at the victims. And another storyline that seems to have more justification and reason that is really more dangerous in my perspective is, is, the, is to demonize our enemy. That we represent goodness and the person who carried this out represent, represents absolute evil. And there's more to warrant a storyline like this because what happened is evil. And justice has to be done, but the storyline overreaches Jesus doesn't say, I'm mad at God, so demonize guns, demonize atheists, demonize anybody who's a non-believer, demonize anyone who's mentally ill. What does he do with his rage? He does not direct it against the people who have done this or against God. He focuses it on death itself. Not the people who caused it and not the people who suffered it. He focused his anger, his rage on death and suffering. He's angry at the tomb. This is the storyline that is biblical. Jesus says, I'm going to turn this death into resurrection. I'm going to bring out something even greater than was here before. <clears throat> that is the gospel storyline. Our storyline that we ought to follow is out of the cross comes the resurrection. Out of weakness comes real strength. Out of repentance and admitting that you're weak comes real power. Out of giving away and serving others comes real strength. Out of generosity and giving your money comes real wealth. That is the gospel storyline. Our most effective civic leaders are not saying that we're being judged. And they're not saying that we're completely good and our enemies are completely evil. What they are saying is that we can bring something better out of this horrible event, out of this tragedy. And that is seeing Jesus in it. Out of this death, we can bring resurrection. Think about it. America is filled with people who don't give a rip about America. All they wanted to do was get ahead. There's so much fun here. There's so much <coughs> money going around. There's so much wealth here. But what if? <coughs> what if America became a community and not an ideology? Through this death, couldn't there be resurrection? Spiritual resurrection. If we could help people see Jesus in this, instead of a bunch of self-aggrandizing individuals and individualists, what if we actually became a community? What if the United States was truly humbled in realizing 
that we are part of the rest of the world. Here's the point. Unless you learn how to handle your anger, unless you know what a storyline is and to put into it, you can be railing and angry against America or railing and angry against God or railing against the demons out there who all look alike so that we can beat them up when we see them on the street, when they don't look like us. Or out of this, death can come a resurrection. That is what we should do with our anger. Don't get rid of it. Be angry at the death. Dylan Thomas said in his poem, Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Say, instead of raging against the dying of the light, I'm going to put this light on and I'm going to make it brighter. I'm going to make it brighter. And someone might say, well, that's hard to do. Well, first, let me tell you to keep your heart open. Don't close it off. Weep with those who weep. And then tell you using a, in a, in a, your, your anger and rage in a way that short circuits the whole process. That is why Jesus gives us the third thing, and it's truth. It's the ministry of truth. It's not just tears. It's not just anger. It's truth. Jesus says to Martha, Martha, I am the resurrection of life. And then he says, do you believe this? When your stance is we are good people, we have been telling you that you've been sinning and now you finally got what you deserve. That doesn't go very well. The gospel storyline is the one that works. Jesus says, I can give you something so much more. If you want an even greater resource, ultimate power to handle this apart from this altruistic wishful thinking, you have to believe. He looks at Martha and says, I can give you this power, but do you believe that I am the Son of God who's coming to the world, that I am the one from heaven who has come down to this planet to die and rise again? Do you believe this? He has a reason to ask, do you believe? Because unless you believe, that he is the son of God who has come into the world. <clears throat> you don't have access to this incredible thing that I'm about to tell you, Martha. And Martha says, yes, I do. And the implication is, do you? <clears throat> I hope that you do, because what I'm about to tell you is contingent on your having a personal encounter with faith and the son of God. Here's what he offers it's not consolation. It's resurrection. Jesus does not say, if you trust me, someday I will take you away from all this. He does not say, someday if you believe in me, I will take you to a wonderful paradise where your soul will be able to forget all about this. <coughs> he does not say he will give us consolation. He says he is giving us Resurrection. Resurrection means that I have come not to take you out of the earth to heaven, but to bring power of heaven down to earth to make a new heaven and a new earth and make everything new. And I am going to restore everything that was lost that will be a million times better than you can imagine. <clears throat> this is the power. The power of a new heaven and a new earth. The joy, the wholeness, and the health, and the newness that will come when tears will be gone and suffering and death and disease will be wiped out. The power that all of this will incorporate and envelope everything. 
Everything is made right in resurrection. Everything is made better. Russian novelist Dachowski put it like this. He says, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for. That all the humiliating absurdity of the human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. In the world's finale, at the moment of, of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass, it will suffice for all hearts and the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, all of the blood we've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that's happened with all men. And when I read this, I feel like I'm looking into an abyss. And I feel like what he's trying to say is that we are not just going to get some kind of consolation that will make it possible for us to get, forget the pain here. Rather, that everything that is bad is going to become untrue. Does that make sense? That everything that is bad here is going to become untrue. That Jesus will take all of those horrible memories, everything bad that has ever happened, they will actually be brought back in and become untrue. <clears throat> right now we have a horrible reality that is true. That innocent children have died. Resurrection means that will become untrue, that they've not died, but that they're alive with him. Jesus says, unless you become like one of these, speaking of children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you believe the gospel? If you believe the gospel, then you have to believe that. There are a lot of people in our country who believe the gospel, but they haven't activated it this week. Maybe their heart hasn't leapt. Maybe they haven't wept when they thought about it. Maybe today they will, I don't know. But Jesus says, unless you believe in me, this is all just a pipe dream. But if you believe in a God who is willing to come and die and resurrect the whole world, a God who would come into our lives, that is the gospel. C.F. Lewis wrote, if we let him, he will make the feeblest and the filthy of us into a radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot imagine, a bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, his own boundless power and delight in goodness. The process will be long, but that's what we're in for. Nothing less. Do we believe that? Jesus says to Martha, do you believe this? Jesus asks in John 11, if you do, then you can face anything. Because I'm about to show you something. In the new heavens and new earth, everything that we have here, the best things that we have here are just going to be a dim echo of what we have there. There is one more thing that we have to recognize. Jesus offered tears. He offered anger and he offered truth. But right after Lazarus was raised, they plotted his death. Grace is an unnatural response. And Jesus would soon die for all to forever conquer this death, the death that we deserve. 
And in his death, we are offered life. After he raised Lazarus from the dead, his enemy said, now he's got to go. He's the most dangerous man there is. We've got to get rid of him now. Don't you think Jesus knew that when he was raising Lazarus from the dead? He knew. He made a deliberate choice. He knew that the only way to interrupt Lazarus' funeral was to cause his own. The only way to bring Lazarus out of the grave was to bury himself not far after this. Isn't that the picture of the gospel? He was dying so that one might live. We have a God who is so committed to ending suffering and tragedy and death that he was willing to come into this world and share in the suffering and the tragedy and even death himself. I know that only because Christianity alone, of all the religions that man has created, Christianity alone tells us that God has specifically loved us to that point. That God lost his son in an unjust attack. That God lost his son in tragedy. And we have to see that. Only Christianity tells us that God has suffered. When someone says to me, I don't know that God cares about our suffering, I say, yes, he does. How do you know that? If there were any other religion, I wouldn't know what to say, but the proof is that Jesus himself was willing to suffer. I don't know why he hasn't ended suffering and evil by now, but the fact that he was willing to be involved, that he got himself involved is proof that he must have some good reason. He cares. He is not just remote. He is not far away from us. Isn't it amazing that Jesus was so different with Martha and with Mary and the way that they dealt with their grief? Martha and Mary, two sisters who came out of the same situation, the same circumstances, the same brother was dead. They even had the same question. Martha and Mary asked Jesus the same question word for word. But in Martha's case, Jesus' words were almost a rebuke as he laid truth on her. And in Mary's case, Jesus just wept. Because he's the perfect counselor. He's not like me. I try, but I tend to be a truther, if that's even a word. I tend to say, I have all the information, and I don't want to waste your time, so let me try to fix things. I want to say, you need to know this, and this, and this, and you need to do it. Sometimes you need someone to weep with you, and I'm not that guy. Oh, how I wish I could be. Sometimes you need to go to a counselor, and a counselor just wants to tell you how to fix it. What you need is someone to tell you the truth. Pull pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But Jesus was the perfect counselor. He will always give us what we need when we need it. If you need truth, if you need tears, if you just need anger, and we all need the grace that he offers, he will give it to you the day that you need it. 
He will give it to you in the dosage that you need it. He will give it to you in the order in which you need it because he is the only perfect, wonderful counselor. You need to go to him. You need to get his tears. You need to get his truth. You need to get his anger even because you need to get his grace. And these are the things that we need and what you need most. That's what he came to give. And in times of tragedy, that's what we have to see, that Jesus understands. Jesus understands, and that's what we're going to keep giving here. So I hope that in these times we can see Jesus and how he interacted with those in times of tragedy to give us an idea of how we ought to interact with people in times of tragedy. And I'm not sure what your situation is right now, but I can tell you that if you're lost, that if you're not in the grace and the soul-saving blood of Jesus Christ, then it is a tragedy. It is a tragedy, and I'll beg you this morning to make it right. Whether you need to put Christ on for the first time or you need to come in repentance, I pray that you'll let it be known now as we stand and sing the song to encourage you.